0: What's up, sports fans? My name is Lucas Weiss, host of the We Sports Chronicles podcast. We got a great episode for your Saturday special of the podcast. Two great guests. First up, Mark Spector. He is a SportsNet.ca columnist covering the Edmonton Oilers. Followed by Eric Francis, also a Sportsnet columnist covering the Calgary Flames. In my conversation with Mark, we chat about his new book about the world juniors and how it's had such an impact on canadian hockey and sports culture over the years we then dive deep into mark's sports media career covering the edmonton oilers his transition from print to digital journalism as well as his advice for young journalists looking to break into the industry then my conversation with eric looks at the possibility of an all canadian division and how this impacts the calgary flames We also get into his sports media career, what goes into being a really good columnist, how he deals with the inevitable backlash that occurs as a columnist, and then some of his favorite Battle of Alberta memories between the Oilers and the Flames. The We Sports Chronicles podcast is available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, so make sure to like, rate, watch, and subscribe to all three of those channels. It's a great episode ahead with two wonderful guests. First up, Mark Spector, then Eric Francis, next on the Sports Chronicles podcast. All right, as I said off the top, I am pleased to be joined by Mark Spector. Mark is a senior columnist at Sportsnet.ca. He's the past president of the Professional Hockey Writers Association and the author of Battle of Alberta and his new book just out recently, Road to Gold. The Untold Story of Canada at the World Juniors. Mark, welcome to the Wii Sports Chronicles podcast. Great for you to be here.
1: Hey, it's an honor to be here, Lucas. How
0: you doing, man? Oh, I'm I'm doing I'm doing really well. And and listen, uh, congrats on your new book, uh, Road to Gold. We'll, we'll get into you know your your various career stops along the way in just a bit. But look, I mean, the World Junior Selection Camp is happening right now as we speak. Very close. I mean, you know, in Red Deer, Alberta, the, the tournament's occurring in Edmonton. Of course, Team Canada's defending gold medalist, but this year so different because, of course, the COVID nineteen pandemic. Mark, maybe just start with what decided, what compelled you to write a book about uh, Canada's holiday tradition, unlike any other.
1: Well, you know, it's it's it has become exactly that. It's really become a Canadian fixture. Mm. You know, I guess looking back, I'm old enough now, Lucas, that I remember a time when it was something you kind of read about in the third page of your newspaper, <laughs> and you know you might find the gold medal game on TV if if Canada was in it, CBC would show it, and it would be this grainy, you know, visual out of some European country, and uh, we did. It was really nothing, you know, back in those days in the early '80s. Guys would turn it down if they didn't feel mm-hmm. like going. They'd go, well, why do I want to go to this thing? Why do I want to play for Team Canada? I think today, every Canadian kid grows up, A, watching every single game. Like, you, know, you can watch Denmark play Norway if you want. <laughs> and B, we grow up with, you know, every young hockey player. It's the biggest honor and the hugest goal of their life to play for Canada at the World Juniors. They would never turn it down. Uh, it's, so it's come such a long way. I guess my point would be that for a tournament that really got started for real, uh, you know, back in the 70s, there's a long history that I think a lot of the newer generation doesn't know about. So when I wrote the book, you know, it's, it's not just a compendium of this happened in 84, and then in 85, this happened in 86. That's been done before and done very well by Garrett yeah uh, What I did was I just tried to give you some history that hopefully you didn't know and tell you some stories that you might have heard about, but maybe you hadn't read fully about. And hopefully giving you, you know, 14 or 15 chapters where you're going to read them and go, man, you know, I, I'd heard of that punch up in Piastani, but I really didn't know how it went down. So mm. uh, hopefully I uh, can deliver on some stories for people who love today's World Juniors and maybe didn't know as much as they thought they did about yesterday's World Juniors. Well, I
0: think it's very important because I know for for me personally, I mean, look, it, it, it is a holiday fixture in our household. But, and I certainly remember the domination of the 2000s you know where you know Sidney crosby's team and that epic shootout against the americans overseas with, with carry price and jonathan Taves, but i would but i would argue mark that the tournament itself has gotten a lot better just because of the fact that, that the teams and the countries have become a lot more deeper in terms of talent depth and whatnot, how, how would you compare and contrast, I mean, just from your experience writing the book to the quality of the tournament right now that, that we see in, on our television screens?
1: Well, listen, uh, you know, when the whole thing started, the, the Soviet Union, right, not <laughs> Russia, the Soviet Union dominated the thing like crazy, no one could beat them. Uh, and then we got into the sort of early 2000s where canada medaled in 19 out of 20 tournaments and played in in 20 years they were in 16 gold medal games so you know we dominated for 20 years and now we're in this crazy time when yeah no one's really dominating you know the swedes haven't lost a tournament game a regular round robin pool game i think since oh my goodness is it 2000 uh 2010 yeah. or 2012 or something like that. I mean, they haven't lost one of those. They haven't won many tournaments, but they've been very successful in the round robin. Uh, and, you know, here's a question for you. If if I told you that Finland has won more medals at the World Junior than the United States, most people would say you're <laughs> crazy, but that's fact. fact. Yep. A little 5 million country like Finland, they found a way to win a few of these things, and they're always in the hunt. So it's good for hockey that we don't have one giant powerhouse. Canada's always going to be good. They're always going to be there. But they don't, you know, we're not playing in, in you know, 16 out of the 20, uh, what's that, 80% of the gold medal games anymore. No. And that's probably better for the sport,
0: right? Yeah. No, I think it's just better quality for, for just the whole tournament. I mean, obviously – Canadians want to see Canada win gold every single time, but I just think, for you know, looking objectively, I think having other countries like a Finland being competitive is good for the tournament. But this year, this year's World Juniors is going to be really unlike any other. I mean, they're they're already starting training camp and selection camp. Pardon me, and it's a month long selection camp. There's 46 players there, and I think the fascinating thing about this camp, Mark, is that there's 27 first round draft selections in the camp and they're going to have to cut some really good players. So I mean, it's going to be really fascinating to see. And then of course, with no fans in the stands, Canada's world juniors are always packed with fans and it's always a raucous atmosphere. So it'll be very interesting to see how the young kids uh, adapt, like the rest of the world has adapted to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: Well, and one of the things, Lucas, that always makes the World Junior is these are still kids, right? Yeah. They're still 19, 18, 19-year-olds. 19 so they're very uh, vulnerable to – they make mistakes. Yeah. Which makes for more exciting. <laughs> for sure. You know, NHL coaches – wreck the game because they basically try to take every mistake out of the game and mistake-free hockey, frankly, is dull. Mm-hmm. Uh, so world junior hockey is not that. That's what makes it so great is every guys make mistakes out there. And why do they make them? Well, they're, you know, when you have a full house in Canada, right? And you've got 19,000 people, you know, all cheering for team Canada. There is a lot of juice in that building <laughs> and and the, the junior player is more vulnerable to that emotion, right? When Canada scores two goals quickly and the crowd's just going wild in an NHL <laughs> rink and everyone's cheering for Canada, not only does it lift the Canadian bench six inches off the seat, but the other bench full of the same age kids, you know, they don't weather it as well as an NHL team might, they don't, they're not professionals, right? The, mm-hmm. This Most of those European kids have never played in that atmosphere before Mm. in their lives when they get to the world junior in Canada and the opposite is true you know when when USA scores a couple quick goals on Canada and all of a sudden that building in Toronto or in Edmonton is deathly quiet (laughs) there's an emotional swing there too so those emotional swings to me anyway they breed You know, they breed exuberance and and emotional play, which often makes for a mistake one way or another, which makes for better hockey, gives you a breakaway, gives you a two on one. All of that's gone. All that emotion won't exist in a in a building without fans. So what we saw with the NHL playoffs was the 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 hockey was just as good. Like it was NHL playoff hockey. I watched the five rounds here in Edmonton. (laughs) It was you know the exact same as every other year, frankly. But what you don't get is you know, the thrill of coming out of the gates with a couple goals and what it does inside a building, right? Uh, the thrill, you know, the old hockey cliche of, of making, um, what do they say? You know, we, we, we made the, we shut down the home team fast, yeah. scored two goals, took the crowd out of it, right? Mm-hmm. When you take the crowd out of it, there's something there. There's some juice there for a hockey team that goes in the other guy's building and takes the crowd. None of that existed. So we'll have good hockey. But the ebbs and flows, you know, the wild emotional moments, most of those are created by fans, frankly. And I guess we're going to have to do that for another, another year here.
0: No, you're absolutely right. And, and certainly I know as a viewer at home, I mean, I certainly got used to the fact that there were no fans and, and I definitely began to just focus on the games themselves. And certainly as the rounds went on, it got more intense, given more meaning to each of the games. But still... I couldn't help but just think. I mean, dang! Like, imagine if there was a full building here. How how crazy it would have been! Like, I think of the Leafs in Columbus and that crazy overtime thriller game. Like, just how crazy Scotiabank Arena would have been in that sense. And I guess for you, Mark, my my question then would be: Is just how how challenging was this experience? I mean, you know, you you, you've, you've covered a lot of hockey throughout your career, but how challenging was just the experience of? covering the the bubble with a lot of changes in, and ultimately restrictions for media members.
1: Yeah, really really challenging to write something that that you're proud of. Mm. You know I mean different guys do things a different way. I'm a bit of an old school guy, sure. It's been around for a while. Uh, I like I, I I count on, right? I count on a couple things as a journalist that, that can give me an edge over all these young kids that are coming up that are so talented, and that have this huge grasp of the new game and the new technology, and and they're fascinated with the analytics. And I'll say this to you: you know, the analytics movement's biggest challenge has always, to me, been turn all those numbers into something that doesn't make my eyes glaze over. I don't feel like <laughs> reading a math, uh, you know, theology math paper, right? Uh, and they're getting better at that. Mm-hmm. Right? the The kids now, the younger writers, they're starting to figure out how to take that spreadsheet and give me something that actually I can read that's interesting. They're yep. getting better at it. That's I, I'm not going to go there. That's not what I'm going to be. i I'm, I guess I'm an old dog, but you know, as a writer, you got to write what interests you. So, my edge, my edge lies in my experience and the ability to interview guys. Yeah. You know, my my ability to ask the question that gets the good answer mm. right and then if you and you know I've always thought and I've always learned over the years that that if you and I do separate interviews and I ask better questions and I get better answers we both sit down on our laptops to write the column and I got better material than you have and if I can write just a little bit my column's gonna win yeah because right? I got better stuff I'm building a house of stronger material than you're building your house out of so What the what the Zoom thing has done to us? It's the giant equalizer because there are no one-on-ones anymore. So every you know every interview is shared by everybody. There's no Mm -hmm. exclusivity. Uh, There are no in the NHL playoffs. There were generally speaking no um, you know you couldn't ask a second question. Mm -hmm. So if if I ask an athlete a question and I found his, his answer interesting and it begs the next question. I didn't get a follow-up,
2: mm.
1: right? The next guy asked his question that had nothing to do with what I was asking. So I guess my point would be, if you talk about challenges in the Zoom era, to me, it's material. Mm. It's, you don't get to go to the morning skates and sit around and talk to guys and learn things and ask dumb questions. Like, <laughs> at a morning skate, I'll sit, sit down next to a guy and we've got time. And I'll say, hey, what, what'd your dad do for a living when you were growing up? <laughs> And every once in a while, he'll say, you know what? My dad ran a funeral parlor and in the summertime, I embalm dead people. <laughs> and you go, That's not a bad story. Mm-hmm. But in the, in the Zoom thing, when you only get one question, you're not going to waste that question on something where you don't think you know what the answer is going to be. The guy might say, oh, my dad was a lawyer, which is great, but it's not that interesting. So the Zoom era is really impinged on getting to know players, on getting to actually do a proper interview, uh, asking four questions in a row and taking an athlete from here to the follow-up question to the next question. And then sometimes it's the fourth one where he's really getting into the topic and he trusts you where you get the money mm. answer. Not a lot of money answers right now, Lucas. And, and that's just the reality, but it's made our work you know, a little less rewarding, right? Yeah. We're not building homes anymore. We're kind of building you know, sheds, as it were.
0: <laughs> no, no, I mean, I I think that's a great answer. And, and look, I mean, I've, you know, done several of these podcasts and, you know, one-on-one, I mean, it's still a barrier, right? Like, it's completely different if, you know, we were in studio talking compared to just me talking to a computer screen and then me talking to you there. But I, I can't imagine just the whole, with, with the Zooms, like, everyone... Is on the same call so they have all access to the same material you can't go and pull someone aside to do that you know walk off the podium quick little quote one-on-one so everyone has access to the same thing so I guess for you then Mark how important are the relationships I guess that you've built throughout your career I guess to then guide some of the stories I guess you were making a lot of phone calls during uh, the Stanley Cup playoffs.
1: Yeah, that's where you can get it now, is you got to get people outside the bubble. So you spend the afternoon, you make a couple calls, you know, and talk to people away. On an off-day story, Mm -hmm. if I said, okay, you know, I'm covering the Dallas Stars Cup final, and they're not playing today, so I'm writing an off-day piece, and I think I know who it's going to be on, I can get up in the morning and try to find some people away from the bubble that know that player. And then I can come in with some, you know, and now I've talked to two or three guys, and now when I sit down with... Rupe hints, I can say, okay, Rupe, uh, here's what I've learned about you, and I want you to answer this question for me. Again, I only get one question with Rupe, like one question, right? I've been writing columns for 30 years, Lucas. <laughs> I haven't written many columns on one question. Yeah. But we just did a whole playoffs on one question columns here. So it's better than nothing. But I'm going to say to you that, again, this is my style, and I'm not saying it's the best style or the only style, but my style is on a game day, I'm not going to the rink with my column written. I'm not going to a game five of a Stanley Cup series, which is always a huge swing game, Mm -hmm. right? I'm not going there knowing what I'm going to write. I used to have a boss would say, what are you writing on Friday? I'll tell you Friday afternoon, man. Mm. I can't, a successful writer doesn't, you know, sure, you got to plan some things, but in 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 the hockey playoffs, when it's game day, your story comes out of the game. Your story, someone scores a goal, someone does something, it's there. So my point would be, I can make up some ground by working the phones on an off day, but on a game day, uh, if you want to get a feel and you want to write something off the game and for whoever scored the goals and you know whoever uh, who was the kid for Dallas that. Um, the Finnish kid that came out of nowhere and scored that hat trick against Colorado. I uh, can't remember his name. Anyway, he was a really neat story. Yeah. We wrote him on the fly and did the best we could, you know, for a guy that I never heard of, before, the, frankly, before that series started, he made the lineup. Uh, so it's just, it's what we have. I don't want to sound like I'm complaining. I'm doing my best to deliver the readers something they want to read. But in the end, I think the reader's a little bit disserviced because it's, you know... It's like telling your your, it's like giving your. You know, I always say this when you get when you get 25 people on a Zoom call, and everybody asks their own question, and none of the questions are really related to each other. It, it's like if I showed up at your house with 15 different ingredients that had nothing to do with each other, like yep. peanut butter and steak and <laughs> asparagus and you know garlic salt and. 20 things that had nothing to do with each other and said make a meal and you got an hour to make it right no uh, you can put those together you can make a nice meal but after the week is over i'm gonna look back on those seven meals i'm gonna go man a couple of those were awful
0: (laughs) so no 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 that's a really good analogy um i want to follow up on what you just said about going to the rink on game day without essentially a story idea so do you then wait for like someone to score a goal is it maybe after the game like when is the when does the light bulb go off in your mind generally being like that's the, that's gonna be my story
1: uh, uh, at all different times yeah being around the series you've always got some things in your quiver you know yeah. what I'd, I'd like to write that guy i'm kind of waiting for him to do something uh i'd like to you know i, I like this angle I'm gonna wait for this angle. Like I like, you know, I like how this guy, uh, the Colorado's penalty kill. You know, there's something in there that interests me. But what I need is a game where they kill five or six penalties. Right? You can't write it when they kill one penalty, or Mm -hmm. if they get a bunch of power play goals scored on. So every game you go to, you've got a few ideas kicking around your head. But to me, the best, the best writer, like they always said, you need to write about. Either A, what they're ta- going to be talking about tomorrow morning around the coffee pot at work, or B, you got to give them what they're going to be talking mm-hmm. about around the coffee pot at work. So you know you can go to the game with all the best ideas in the world, and and sometimes deadlines make you work, you know, do some work ahead of time so that you can get your stuff in on time. I get all that, but but the guy that goes to the, to an important hockey game with his story half written. And with his idea cemented uh he's it's you know that's i to me that's not how the job's done mm. i'm going to tell you what happened in the game i don't know what happened in the game until they play the game or till part of the game has been played or till the big incident happens mm. in the game right cam cole used to always say i'd say what's the call tonight he goes it hasn't happened yet mm. might be the first period might be the third you know that's if you're a pro Sometimes it's an overtime goal, right? Yeah. Sometimes the guy who scores an overtime is such a fantastic story that who cares what you have written? Now it's overtime. Now it's late at night. I got 40 minutes. I got to turn this thing over. But I know that's the story of the day. That's, you know, if you can do it and do a good job, I guess they'll call you a pro.
0: I remember the headlines before sports shut down due to the pandemic. And there were a lot of conversations just about how, media restriction was starting to begin and and obviously there were concerns about media access in in the different leagues and i've had a few hockey writers on the show mark and 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 to me the opinion is a little bit you know diverse some think you know look when when when, you know the pandemic is, is over we'll get back to what it used to be in terms of media player interactions others less optimistic you were once the president of the PWHA. I'm just curious whether you think the way in which media was done in the NHL is that going to be what it's what, what, post-pandemic or will it evolve into something different?
1: Well, I can say this that uh, you know the the people who are running the PHWA today are, are have been told in in explicit terms by Bill Daly, the deputy commissioner of the national hockey league that their goal is to get back to where they were mm. open morning skates, going into dressing rooms after games. That's what the NHL is publicly stating to the professional hockey writers association. So that much is fact. Uh, it's recorded history and we'll hold them to it. Um, you know, let's, uh, let's see where our world goes. Like, yeah. are we going to become, are we going to become such germ freaks out of this that, that, you know, the, the, Dynamics surrounding COVID will exist longer than COVID itself exists, right? Mm. I, who can predict? Mm-hmm. I don't know for sure. Uh, um, I would say to you that hockey, of all the sports, being the smallest of the North American major sports, it needs its story told, mm. and uh, it's not getting told very well right now. There's just no, no. you know, there's no doubt about it. It's not close. Uh, morning skates are a real cool dynamic. And in basketball, you know, the shoot around in the morning, that's where guys get the best stuff, where they really get to talk to players, get to ask all the different questions. Players after a game, you know, for any young reporters out there, all you kids, as Don Cherry (laughs) used to say, uh, after games, it's difficult to get decent work done because there's an adrenaline factor with the players. Uh, There's a lot more media around every guy. In today's world, teams sort of bring out the three stars of each team, and and the dynamic is let's talk about what just happened in the game. I want to I want to write the story on, you know, I want to write the I want to tell a guy's story. I need to sit down and talk to him about where he grew up, how he grew up. What one of my favorite questions, right? What your parents do for a living? Hmm. Uh, tell me about that junior team where that big incident happened. You know, were you? Why did you pick college instead of junior? All those little questions, as an interviewer, you don't know which one's going to get you the money quote. So in in the end, you got to ask a lot of them. And post-game, you don't get that opportunity. The morning skate and practices are absolutely where the good work gets done.
0: I want to pivot now to talk about your career. And and prior to working with Sportsnet, I mean, you you you, you were in the newspaper business with the National Post, Edmonton Journal, and even – the University of Alberta student newspaper, The Gateway. So, you know, you come to sports with a lot of newspaper experience and obviously newspapers aren't what they once were. But I'm curious for you, Mark, how important and formative were those experiences for you in in developing your craft and the calmness that you are today?
1: Well, uh, very much so. The newspaper industry, you know, where where the industry itself is clearly, you know, turning into the fossil fuel industry, <laughs> uh, there's no question that the actual hard copy newspaper industry is, is going the way of the dinosaur. Uh, the skills therein uh, are still every bit as strong today. The the you know re- learning to write on deadline for one, right? That's one thing about the internet uh there's really no the only deadline on the internet lucas is when your editor wants to go home at the end of his shift yeah right in, in the newspaper business the presses started rolling at 10 30 local mm. you know, or 11 o'clock local and there was no holding back on one hundred and fifty thousand papers uh, because you wanted to tune up that gamer a little bit
2: right?
1: <laughs> so you learned about deadline writing you learned about you know I would say in the newspaper business what we don't have today is there were so many fewer voices in each market lucas you know there was i grew up in edmonton and i started my career in edmonton the eminent journal and there's two papers like for hmm. the internet there wasn't a hundred hockey voices for people to read in the morning about the league it's certainly about the orders and the eskimos and the local scene there was two papers and when you become a columnist there's two columnists so it's you know it's me and Harry Jones, yeah, the eminence, son, battling it out, and you want to win the day every day, hmm. so you do. It, it, you learn a lot about, you know, competing, right? You learn a lot about competing, looking for scoops. You know, again, in in this world, when Bob McKenzie breaks something in the NHL, Elliot Friedman follows him by about ten seconds on Twitter, and that's your now everybody's got it in the world, and that's your scoop. Yeah, you know, I grew up in a world where. When I got a real good scoop or when I got scooped by the other guy, Hmm. you know, you'd pick up that paper in the morning, you'd open it up and you'd go, oh, my God, we got killed today. Hmm. You know, and you'd have to live with that scoop for 24 hours until you got a chance to redeem yourself in tomorrow's paper. So you had to live with with failure for a lot longer. And the reward was when you were the guy getting the scoop, you got to enjoy it for a lot longer, too.
0: Did the fact that you I, mean, you I mean you just mentioned how there were only just two calmness because compared to let's say starting in toronto where there were ton, where there's tons of attention and, and it's a bigger market the fact that there were only two in edmonton did that allow you to build let's say a better connection with your readership or did that not really concern yourself as much
1: you know that's fair that's fair and you know like Edmonton, for I don't know why, has punched above its weight in terms of sports media. Mm. The guys that have come out of this town, the good guys—let's you know, oh, start. Uh, Terry Jones is one of the, you know, bigger columnists of his generation in Canada. He's always been evident. Cam Cole is one of the finest writers ever to grace the Canadian sports page. He came out of Edmonton. Chris Cuthbert, Gordon mm-hmm. Miller—you know—all kinds of guys that that have found, for whatever reason, I don't know why. So it's a good sports town. So you're working in this town and people care about their sports here. So that's important. Uh yeah, you know, I would say to you that even in the city of Toronto, which is obviously far, far bigger, I mean, what did they have? They had the star, of the sun, and the globe. Yeah back in the day. It wasn't like there was six other papers going on. The National Post eventually arrived. I worked for it for a while. Uh so I think in every city across the country, you know, Vancouver had two papers. Calgary had two papers. Uh, you know, Ottawa had two papers. It's, it's, it, it was, how would I, I guess it was just a smaller time. People, there were so few media people in each town to read every day that that people made a real connection with you. Mm. And this isn't complaining. It's just a new world. It's a different time now. Today's, today's, uh, you know, Edmonton reader can get up and, turn on his phone and read people from across the world. He wants to read about the Bundesliga, it's right there on his iPad today, this minute. You know, in the old days, that didn't exist. So in the old days, you'd get up and you'd look at your local, your local paper came to your house, if you were a sports fan, maybe both of them, and you really felt, grew a connection with your hockey writer, with your columnist. And they would say, you know, I, again, I'm in Edmonton, and they would say, man, what would Cam Coles write today? And Cam was such a fine, fine columnist that he brought you to his page every day and you wanted to see what he thought every day. And that was an honor to be in that position. Some guys pull it off better than others, Lucas. But when you, you know, when I run into a guy that says, Hey, I've read you since the gateway and I really enjoy your stuff, I mean, that means something, man. You've you've had, that guy's been a loyal reader for a long time, and and you know, I guess with the vast expanse of, of writers out there today, so too does, does the ability to have loyal readers shrink, right? Because, you know, it's, it's almost like supply and demand, isn't it?
0: No, for sure. And and look, I mean, I guess right now, I mean, the biggest thing is just the different platforms of change, right? Like people are now, you know, relying on digital platforms, their phones, social media, to consume their information compared to getting the newspaper delivered to them at their house and, and, you know, picking it up and actually reading it. So it's very, it's very different. But as you said earlier, I mean, the skills still transfer on and, and, you know, even throughout your career has the process or the secret ingredient of what makes a good column changed for you over the years or for you, has it still remained pretty well the same.
1: I think I would have to say to you that the, the, what I consider a good column today, uh, hasn't changed that much.
2: Mm.
1: You know, I would say, I would say to you that the biggest difference probably, I mean, I'm the constant. I've been writing this column for 30 years. So Mm. I'm the, I'm the part of the math equation that stayed the same, right? The part of the math equation that's changed is, is your readership. You know, it's it's not so local anymore. It's mm-hmm. world. I guess it's worldwide. So there's a lot more people, but again, those people have a lot greater choice and a lot less time.
2: Mm. Let's
1: let's talk about time. You know, do people? How many people offer an opinion on something you write? On you know, you. I read a piece, sportsnet puts it out there on Twitter. I retweet it with a little note saying, "Hey, here's my piece on Lucas's podcast." How many people offer an opinion on that without ever reading my (laughs) call? You know, lots. Yeah, for sure. You know, so so I'm a long form writer. I mean, not not magazine style. I'm an 800 to 1,000 word a day guy, and I'll give you five a week. Um, But sometimes you question if maybe you have to be a better writer today to hold someone through 800 words. Do people really want to read 800 words anymore? Do they have time to read everybody's 800 words? Or do they read the first couple of graphs and click somewhere else? Mm -hmm. You know, again, in the newspaper situation, you only had one main sports columnist. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like you had another guy to go to that took your eye off the ball. You read, you know, Steve Simmons from the top to the bottom, because there was only one Steve Simmons in your Toronto Sun today, Mm -hmm. right? Now, there's a hundred Steve Simmonses and Mark Specters out there And if the first graph of spec doesn't, you know, catch me, I go find Eric Francis' piece and read him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, absolutely. I mean, it's a good point. And, like, I think, though, but what I will say is while, I mean, newspapers, though, were in many ways restricted by space, right? Like, you know, you need to get to a certain word limit in order to, you know, fit fit the paper. But I guess one of the benefits of online, one of the benefits of online is that I mean, you have the capacity to write and do a deep dive that's a thousand, two thousand, three thousand words. I don't know. I mean, look, I mean, I do certainly agree that I think there are people and there are more distractions today. But if you are talented enough, if you have a, you know, a skill or a, a knowledge about a certain topic or trend and are willing to, you know, really expand on it and really offer some good reporting. I think people are, are are still willing to to read if it's a really compelling story. That's the big thing.
1: I think that's fair. Uh, I, I I'll tell you this. Uh, well, there's there's a couple things here. Let's chew on this. Mm-hmm. Certainly, inside the industry, it, it's a well known axiom that it's easier to write long than it is to write short. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's easier to blast everything out there. Write a two thousand word piece and use every quote you got much more difficult to take all that content and write a cra- craft craft up you know a, a slim compact interesting 800 word piece mm-hmm. so so i think what you're you're right you know there is certainly there's no space restraints constraints at all in the internet uh, and i think we can point to the athletic you yes know, that's probably the best example the athletic is about long reads on everything
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and a lot of those long reads are worth 2,500 words but I'm here to tell you without pointing any specific fingers a lot of those aren't Mm -hmm. you know in my opinion a lot of those 2,500 word pieces would be a hell of a lot better if they were 1,100 words so you know again as a newspaper I I'll give you 1,500 words you know (laughs) five times, uh, 10 times a year.
2: Mm.
1: But, uh, you know, if my boss says, go off and do a feature on this guy, I'll give you 2,500 words. I can do all that stuff yeah. takes a little bit longer, but I'm a daily columnist. That's what I do in the, my niche in this business is to write every day. That's mm. what I do. I'm not a guy that writes two a week or one a week. That's who I am. And I can tell you that it's not always a better piece because it's a longer piece mm. and that, that includes my own copy mm-hmm. for sure. You know when i start putting the brakes on around 750 800 words some days i go you know what this is worth a thousand words other days i look at what i got and say this is better at 750 than it would be at a thousand
0: hmm. and i mean that's a really good point about this whole concept of reviewing your work and it's clear in just your previous answer that you know you're constantly rereading your work looking back to seeing how you can tinker and 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 improve how how important is that for younger journalists today especially getting into the industry just in terms of you know it's important to produce content and and certainly if you're into writing you know get as many reps as you can writing but i think reviewing your work as well as reviewing others work to see how you can improve can certainly make you a better overall writer
1: oh for sure like you have to you know i look back at my own work no, I, I mean, I'm at a different stage in my career. Uh, as Michael Farber used to say, I'm at, the, I'm at garbage time in my career. <laughs> uh, he never had garbage time, but he was such a great writer. But I guess my point would be to you that although I still try to be flexible and, and not get stuck in a rut, uh, I'm not at that point where I'm actively trying to find my style. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Kind of got a style now that I'm stuck with Of course. Or not. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as a young... You know, but I still the adva- the advice I would say for even for a guy like me that's been around for a while. When I go into, you no, know, it's a good example. Let's say a game seven. Mm. You know, sometimes you go to a game seven and you want to advance it. It's the day before a game seven, and frankly, the only thing that matters in the series is who wins tomorrow. There's, it's no time for a, a lovely feature on you know on um, how. Austin Matthews grew up in Arizona, that's it's not today, right? Mm-hmm. So I'll go back and look at game seven advanced copy that I've written over the years and, you know, go back to a bunch of different series over. I've written probably that column probably 20 times the day before game seven. And you look at what you wrote and you look at how it's come along. And, and I'm telling you right now, I'll steal a quote from something Jonathan Tave said in, you know, 2011 Mm -hmm. because the reader didn't read me then. And if he did, he's forgotten about it. So, so as an older writer, I'll still look back at my stuff all the time to see what worked and what didn't work. And as a young writer, uh, you know, read your stuff. I know how painful it is the next day. (laughs) I hate (laughs) myself. I write it on Tuesday and I read it about 15 times while I'm writing it. Lucas, Mm. I don't need to read it again Wednesday, but I'll tell you what, I don't mind reading it again in about a month. having a look back at it when i've forgotten what i wrote and a fresh eye can say you know what that turn of phrase worked turn of phrase didn't work uh and the last thing i'll say is figure out who you think the good writers are out there Mm. and read them every day you know have your list as a young writer don't let a day go by if you consider stephen brent to be a great writer when he pens something read it Mm -hmm. and you know i'm not saying take notes because it doesn't really work that way but just absorb how the great writers work, and I don't consider myself be one of them. But there's a few left out there. Uh, absorb it, read it, and you know what? Some osmosis does occur. And don't be afraid to steal a little style point from each guy because we all did it along the way.
0: It's interesting in building off of that because I mean, not only are you writing at Sportsnet.ca, but you know, you're appearing on the radio, sideline reporting on TV, things like that, and I guess it's just a sign of how the industry has evolved for for you, Mark. I mean, how, you know, when you first started out, you know, you're strictly print and now you have to, you know, use all these different platforms. I'm just curious how that's made you just a more well-rounded journalist.
1: Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's it's a n- necessary for one. Mm-hmm. And it's not even a... Uh, for younger people coming into the business today, no problem. You know, guys like yourself, you're so well versed in in the technical aspects of this business that I never had to be well versed in. Right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: To, when I started, be the ability to use a laptop and file from a payphone was considered technical skills. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, those <laughs> days are. Oh yes, it's no one's just a writer anymore, mm-hmm. right? No one's just a writer anymore. You're doing it all, so. You know has that helped me journalistically uh you know i'm going to be i'm going to say something you might not want to hear the best journalism still happens in the written word mm. i feel yeah i feel like you know sure there's some great talent there's the 30s and 30s are fabulous there's a a piece on w5 that's great there's you know, th- there are some, obviously, Rick Westhead does some real good stuff at TSN. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steven Brunt will do a beautiful montage-type deal that's awesome. Like, I love all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But big picture, you know, the Katie Strangs of the world at The Athletic. Uh, Mary Ormsby was such a brilliant writer in yeah. Toronto. Um, big picture on an everyday basis, when you go out seeking journalism day after day after day after day, the vast majority is found in the written word. Yep. Uh, we re- we enjoy our podcasts, you know, we, we do our chats all the time on Sportsnet. myself and Gene Principe and yeah. things I don't do that, frankly, journalism, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's entertaining. It mm-hmm. the point across, you know? So I still consider myself a journalist. I'm proud to be a journalist. And uh, even though the guys that do the written word thing aren't always the highest paid or the get the most notoriety, uh, I'm still proud to count myself among the ink-stained wretches, Lucas.
0: No, I know. I absolutely as you should be, because I think that writing is the hardest one to master. To be honest with you, like I think you know some, you know some of us, you know you're born with the good pipes, you're born with the good voice, or things like that. And I mean, you see a lot of writers like yourself. Shy Davidi, Michael Grange, who you know have gone from the print to you know TV, and you can master that and learn that on you know on the job, but like it takes years and years for the written word to be you know really up to par. And and, and I I believe it's the hardest to master, but once you do, I think it's also the most fulfilling. Like you, uh, like you previously said.
1: Well, one thing that I will say that that's really been a happy happenstance. Throughout COVID, you know, when we all got limited, they stopped playing games, and they stopped doing live interviews. And the guys that that needed a camera and a microphone in front of a player or or a personality to get the job done, they couldn't work. Mm -hmm. You know, you just couldn't work, right? So, so Sportsnet and Sports really leaned on its digital content at Mm -hmm. our place, and I was, you know, obviously pleased because it's. You know, there's a lot of layoffs in our industry throughout COVID. Yep. It's not pretty. Uh, I'm I'm happy to be able to say that I was able to work, you know, even when they stopped the league on March twelfth, uh, we rode a ton in the rest of March and in April and May and June. And then the season started up in July and worked five rounds of playoffs. Uh, and now they're sort of leaning on us for stuff still because you still can't really interview a player that well. So it it has lasted, right? The in the end, you know what? Throughout this COVID, while a lot of things have ceased, the written word has soldiered on, and I'm happy to see that.
0: Speaking of the written word, you you wrote a really impactful uh, column recently. Um, you know, talking about the late uh, the late Joey Moss, who who I know meant so much to so many in uh, the city of Edmonton. I'm just. I'm just curious. I mean, you know, for those my listeners may not know who, who Joey was, and you know, just how how important was he for the city of Edmonton all throughout the years that, that, that you covered the team.
1: Well, he, you know what? He became everyone's, you know, everyone. I don't know, everyone's little brother. Is that fair? Yeah. Uh, a, a city's little brother. You know, <laughs> even though he he was, I believe, 57 when he passed away. Uh, certainly, as a journalist. You know, you walk in the room and joy was always there with a kind word, a hello, how's it going? You know, just that, that a, a, as players changed out, as coaches and general managers changed out as, as, you know, the Eskimos went from champions to not so champions, the Oilers, same thing. The one constant was joy Moss. And, mm. uh, you know, did we take joy for granted? You're damn right we did, right? Mm. Because he was part of the furniture. He was just there every time. And, um you know, did I ever write a, a, a nice piece on Joey while he was alive? I'm foolish enough that I can say to you I did not. Uh, and writing him was an honor upon his passing. But, you know, he was, he, Joey was just, on one hand, there was nothing special about him. And on the other hand, there was everything special, right? He, he was just, he was that Down syndrome kid that got a, a special chance to do something cool mm. and ran with it and... It's just the, you know, did he ever have a bad day? He might have. I was never around for one, so hmm. uh, you know, he became uh, in the city of Edmonton. Maybe it's a bit of a local story. I know he went national, but uh, I would say to you, I'm not sure there's a a, a person that ever did more for the, how the rest of us look at Down syndrome uh, people uh, than Joey Moss. I'm not sure anyone ever made more progress uh, in terms of you know just what we feel like like a Down syndrome person can do right a, a, a challenged person can actually we can hire them you know they can do the job uh, they can they can do everything that we can do and I'm not sure everybody thought that until we watched Joey Moss do it for all those years
0: no doubt and, and to me my my biggest memory was like the the 2006 Stanley Cup final Edmonton Carolina seen him passionately sing the anthem as, as he often did but Boy, that gave me chills. Uh, not when 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 they went to the, you know, the Oilers and the Hurricanes. It was it was quite uh, quite moving to say the least. But uh, last question for you, Mark, and I and I, and I asked this to your colleague, uh, Eric Francis, uh, down in Calgary. But uh, Battle of Alberta, you've you, you've covered a lot of memorable meetings. What's your uh, what memory stands out to you and why?
1: Oh boy, that's a good question. The best one. Well, yeah. Tell you what, I wrote a book on it. <laughs> <laughs> Available at the finest bookstores near you. Nice. Uh, you know, I don't think it's a question that gets answered with one moment. I was at the game where Steve Smith scored his own goal. Mm. Uh, I remember Gretzky coming down the wing and blasting that puck over Vernon's shoulder. Uh, I recall Dave Brown fighting Stu Grimson twice. You know, once in one game and then once again in the other. Um, gosh a moment you know what it's come back finally with with that and i applaud matthew kachuk you know he's got the black hat on now down in calgary and this round was just dying for someone to strap that black hat on and be a heel right Mm -hmm. he's the heel and he's caused you know really caused this thing to alight again so i'm an evident kid grew up watching it uh i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say that there's one moment that that You know, there's so many moments Mm -hmm. I can't pick one over the other. But I guess what I'll say is, what became clear over the years is the orders were better. Yeah, you know, the orders were just a better team. Uh, They had what seven Hall of Famers, including Glenn Sather. Um, But Calgary was so good that they took Edmonton's level, which was already here, and they made it go to here. Mm. Right, Edmonton couldn't get out of the Smythe without beating. Frankly, the second best team in the NHL a lot of years. And once they got past Calgary, they tended to just cruise. You know, mm-hmm. they barely lost a game to the Norris division in all those years. And their Stanley Cup finals outside of a seven gamer with Philly, you know, they did pretty well in them. So it was Calgary's. Calgary doesn't get the credit for being as good a team as they were.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Edmonton sort of quietly, privately loved the fact that Calgary pushed into to the end, couldn't quite beat them because there wouldn't be five Stanley Cups in Edmonton if the Calgary Flames weren't the organization that Bob Johnson and Al Coates and those guys built them into.
0: Mark Spector is a senior senior columnist at sportsnet.ca. Mark, thanks so much for coming on today, the We Sports Chronicles podcast.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, as I said off the top, I am pleased to be joined by Eric Francis. If you watch hockey in the Calgary area, I'm sure you've, you've heard Eric, you've seen Eric on TV, you've read a lot of Eric's work. He's a senior columnist and analyst with Sportsnet covering the Calgary Flames, and he joins me today on the we Sports Chronicles podcast. Eric, welcome. Thanks so much for being here.
3: Hey, thanks for having me, and congrats on all your success. You've got uh, quite an interesting cachet of uh, of, uh, of guests over over the last little while. I'm sorry you're going to ruin it with me and <laughs> Seth.
0: <laughs> well, hey, listen, you know, got to have a Battle of Alberta edition of the podcast at some point, and uh, what better way to do it than in November? And hey, in a normal season, Eric, I mean, I'm sure it's, you know, you're one month into the season, you're getting back into the into the swing of things, but... This year has been so different for a multitude of reasons. How have you sort of spent these these, these last you know few months where normally you'd be covering hockey, but now it's the off-season and awaiting uh, the 2021 season?
3: Puzzles. Puzzles, <laughs> my friend. I've been doing 1,000 and 2,000-piece puzzles. It's <laughs> pretty pathetic is what it is. Uh, my honeydew list has been completed for good lord, maybe six months now with this pandemic. Uh, No, it's an an interesting time. You know, I'm spending more time with my kids, my family. Uh, That's not a bad thing. You know, I don't miss the travel, although I I do feel privileged to be traveling all over the NHL. I mean, that's a fun gig, and I I don't, uh, you know, I I would love to be doing that right now, but in the absence of that, uh, you know, getting stuff done around the house, uh, including puzzles, which, again, like I said, is pretty
0: pathetic. So are you like, so, so with puzzles, so are you like, you know, has your speed gone up? Has your efficiency, efficiency increased? I mean, what's, what what are the sorts, what are your favorite puzzles these days?
3: Yeah, you know, the technique, I think my technique has probably improved. Sure. My perseverance, you know, I think I'm a little bolder now. I'll tackle puzzles that I forward look at and shudder. I've always secretly liked puzzles, but you never can do them without guilt. Uh, you know, when you're doing a puzzle, it's the biggest time waster out there, in my opinion. Um, and if you've got stuff to do, uh, you feel guilty the whole time. But now I can do it without guilt. And um, I don't like the ones with, you know, animals and <laughs> fur. Those are too, still a little too intricate and tricky for me. But I go with a thousand pieces. I can usually get it done in a couple days. Uh, I don't know. Who's a good puzzler? I will say this, I heard about the puzzling world championships. Mm. And um, someone was telling me, my mother-in-law is a big puzzle. We do it at Christmas all every year. We have a puzzle, we do it together. She was saying that at the world championships, they show you the picture that you're assembling. You get like two or three minutes to look at it and you take the photo away. So you're doing a puzzle basically blind. And unless you have a photographic memory, you have no idea what you're assembling. Uh, that doesn't sound like much fun to me. And Matthew Kachuk told me earlier in the pandemic that his mom had ordered a 2,000-piece puzzle that was blank white. <laughs> Just a blank white puzzle, 2,000 pieces. That sounds like the definition of insanity to me.
0: <laughs> and I know your Twitter bio says that you're a big golf junkie. So how's how's the golf game been? Have, have you been able to get and hit the links or, or, or not these days?
3: Well, well Lucas, I in calgary right now it's snowing. snow before i talk to you so i don't want to really talk about that but that's the interesting about this you know we spec and i and people in our industry you know i mean you we usually get our summers off we usually Mm -hmm. get two or three months off if you live in alberta you usually get four or five months off uh because as soon as your team's out of the playoffs or the regular season then you're free um because i golf five six days a week uh that's an easy you know, jump to make from the NHL to my golf passion with snow outside. I can't go to that. Hmm. And that's, what's really, really, uh, changing my, you know, it's really hard because, you know, changing my lifestyle tremendously. Again, first world problems. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Usually I can fall back on golf. I'm not big on simulators or anything (laughs) like that. So I have taken up another hobby. I'm following the F1 for the first time. Oh, right on Netflix the netflix series on it really kind of got me and my son my 10 year old son hooked and now i'm kind of following it with intrigue I, I have a lot to learn about it but it's kind of funny to at age at my advanced age to be learning about a new sport and i'm really enjoying
0: it yeah i mean it's certainly uh in popularity during the pandemic i feel and certainly when you have lewis hamilton dominating i think he, he's sort of becoming like the wayne gretzky of uh, formula yeah. one it seems like every week i'm just seeing on the social media channels him uh, doing really well. But, Eric, I mean, obviously right now, as we're recording this, still a lot of uncertainty regarding uh, the the 2021 season. Obviously, there's hope for a January 1st start. There also is rumor of an all-Canadian division. And I'm curious your thoughts on, on, on being able to have the opportunity to cover that. Because I think for hockey fans certainly in different parts of the country are used to the classic rivalries calgary edmonton toronto montreal where i'm from but now i mean it'd be really unique to see like calgary toronto maybe a rivalry form there uh, you know tj brody against his former team i mean just your thoughts on the potential of an all canadian division uh
3: i just published a column on that exact thing i mean i think because we don't know a whole lot about how the NHL is going to look. I know the NHL doesn't know how yeah. the NHL is going to look and they need, they are going to do what they did in the summer by taking their time, watching the numbers around the world, around North America, as they continue to spike. And then, you know, if they continue to spike the way they have been, we won't have hockey in January. Mm-hmm. And I, I still don't think we're going to have hockey in January. Uh, but I, either way, Whenever they started, I think the one thing you can take to the bank is an all-Canadian division. That that border is not going to open anytime soon, and because they won't be in a perfect bubble, um, you know I can't see them getting around having to quarantine going across the, the 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 border. So, all-Canadian division is the one thing we do know will happen, and I know from Calgary's perspective, uh, all six storylines are just so filled with intrigue. Um, even the one team that I would submit from a Calgary perspective, nobody could possibly care about the Ottawa Senators. Terrible team, terrible franchise, um, rebuilding, um, but you've got a brother act there. You've got the Kachuks going at each other, which is a phenomenal storyline always. So even that has some intrigue. Winnipeg Jets, I would say normally, who cares? Like, uh, there's no intrigue here, but they just played in the play-in together, and Matthew Kachuk knocked out Mark Shifley. Mm -hmm. Is there going to be revenge? Is there going to be bad feelings? I mean... There are a lot of storylines and then the leafs of the leafs. Wherever they go, there's tons of intrigue and storylines. Montreal's revamped. Josh Anderson is a guy who the Calgary Flames were chasing for several years. And now he's a Montreal Canadian and will play a, a prominent role in their continued redevelopment. And, 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 you know, people will want to see how he looks. Paul Byron is a former player. He's now an assistant captain with the Habs. I, anyway, I've detailed all of this in the column I just wrote for sportsnet.ca on all the storylines uh, highlighted of course by the edmonton oilers you may have seen there were some drinks <laughs> there last year that battle of alberta was phenomenal got re-triggered all because of matthew kuchuk and then now the flames have gone and raided the vancouver canucks in the off season so there's great storylines there as well and before the battle of alberta got reignited this year vancouver canucks have been calgary flames top rival for the past two decades and that's because they played four times in the playoffs against one another Uh, playoffs build that rivalry faster than anyone else but an entire season where you play all the Canadian teams that will enhance those rivalries even more it's going to be incredible
0: you spoke of the battle of alberta and and even you know people like myself living in toronto we were really excited by you know just every time the oilers and the flames seemed to play it was filled with energy and electricity have you seen, like, a Battle of Alberta like that? Because it felt like it was, like, a throwback to the 1980s, just in terms of yeah. the level of intensity every game.
3: Yeah, it, it's been since the 80s. You know, I remember seeing it then, and uh, I'm old enough to remember that and I've <laughs> covered some of that. And uh, But, you know, not in 20-plus 20, 20 years have we seen the intensity. But more, probably the best word of all the words you could throw at is hatred. I mean... Mm. Fans, Flames fans, hate Oilers fans, always have. Over the last little while, they tolerate one another because both teams are basically irrelevant. But now, because they're both up in each other's grill, uh, we got goalies fighting, we got Kachuk and Kass. I mean, the, the list of combatants goes on and on. The Lucic, James Neal angle is an interesting one. Um, but, you know, both teams are, are on the, on, the, on the cusp of being relevant again or at least both organizations think they're on the cusp of being contenders again. So that adds just another layer of intrigue. I mean, these two teams will be battling for a playoff spot in that division as they, you know, were last year. So, so many storylines with the Oilers and that battle about Alberta last year. You know, I know they didn't play their first game in the series until I think it was January or maybe it was Christmas. And it was about midway through the season. And then they played, I think, three times over the course of a month. And it was give us more give us more let's play some more and unfortunately the pandemic cut the season short because they were still going to play again Uh, I know one of their last meetings of the year was going to be the very last game of the season and that would have been incredible because there would have been playoff implications the hatred the vitriol would still be there I so look forward to it I mean they're going to play each other at least eight times this year Uh, you know if, if they have a 48 game schedule they'll play eight times I would assume they're going to try and get more games in. So it could be 10 times. could be 12 times. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. Get the the ambulances ready because there's going to be some casualties.
0: No doubt. And it it feels like a playoff atmosphere in the regular season. Couldn't even imagine if it was an actual playoff series in the first round. You know, Oilers-Flames. But, Eric, I mean, you know, one of the big news, you know, Headlines of the off season was T.J. Brody coming to Toronto, and certainly for the Leafs, getting you know someone to, to upgrade their blue line, very very important for for them. But in your experience covering T.J., what are the Leafs getting just as a person and the intangibles um in terms of your experience covering uh, Brody during his tenure with the Flames? Well, he
3: he's as quiet an NHLer as I've ever dealt with in my career i mean he he's basically an enigma he Mm -hmm. rarely does interviews he he'll always do the interview if you ask for it but he doesn't like talking to the media he's very quiet shy likes to keep to himself doesn't offer much you know pretty dry interview and and you'll see all that in toronto Um, but as a player i think people in toronto know the kind of player he is but i I would just caution people Mm You know, people in Calgary really fell in love again with T.J. Brody this year. He had a really good resurgence in his career. Played on that top pairing with Mark Giordano. Uh, You know, helped Giordano win a Norris Trophy two years ago. And, but um, T.J. Brody has been a whipping boy in this city for a lot of years. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's a very high-risk defenseman. You know, whether it's a breakout pass up the middle that gets intercepted in back of the net or it's a it's a it's a gamble he takes out the blue the opposing blue line that goes all the way down for a breakaway goal the mistakes he does make are glaring and i've always and i'm not just saying this because he's a leaf now i've always compared him to jake gardner in toronto Mm. a guy who's a very offensive slick skating puck moving defenseman. pretty one-dimensional in terms of you know he's offense first defensive he wasn't great well I was wrong in that because T.J. Brody defensively this year was really phenomenal. So he's really become a two-way guy. But the way that the lead used to beat up on Jake Gardner, (laughs) and from afar, I couldn't understand it. The guy put up great points, anchored your power play, all these sort of things, but defensively was a massive liability. And the mistakes he did make always came at big moments, and everybody was pointing at him going, that's on you. The same... Could be said for tj brody for many years here in calgary so i'm just saying people are going to fall in love with him because they think he's the solution for that top pairing to play with morgan riley and he will be great there just don't be surprised if at time people start to pile on him and uh you know he loses his confidence for a little bit uh that's the tj brody that we remember largely over the years here in calgary but a really good guy and is a great addition for the Leafs. just he comes with flaws
0: I love that answer because it's measured and it's something that I think Leafs nation needs to learn how to be because I remember when TJ Brody got signed, like it was literally like we're going to win the Stanley cup or it's complete and utter disaster, nothing in the middle. So I really appreciated that answer. Um, Leafs fans can't be, uh, you know, neutral. It's got to be the extremes. It feels like.
3: (laughs) Well, and, and Lucas, I'll say this. I mean, anytime someone gets signed in the national hockey league, the team that gets them generally think, Oh my God, this is fantastic. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what the the Leafs certainly have needed a puck moving offensive minded defenseman who could well, a guy who can play both ends, but a solid number two defenseman on their team. They need that. They've been needing that for five years, whether management knew it or not. Most fans around the league knew, but anyway, yeah, he checks those boxes, but, um, any time a guy is signed, generally, everyone thinks, oh, this is going to be great. And these are all the reasons why. The general manager usually does a good job selling why they brought a guy in. The media usually, you know, agrees with that. So he does check all the boxes for sure. Um, I, I hate the term. and I'm not comparing one man's, you know, junk is another man's gold. Mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting that he's junk. Please do not no. ever misinterpret that. They're paying him far too much for me to ever suggest that. But... You know, it's just funny how when you go from one venue to another, all of a sudden you get a renewed fan base and optimism, and uh, people don't look at the warts involved as well. So, you know, it'd be a good fit, though.
0: Obviously, you know, covering the NHL so different amidst the global pandemic. These Zoom sorts of interviews and press conferences have become part of the norm. I've obviously had journalists on the show, Eric, and, and they've shared their experiences about, the challenges of of reporting on uh, their respective sport amidst the pandemic, but has your maybe enjoyment of hockey diminished at all during this time, or or does you know given just how strange and maybe impersonal it is to cover the sport when you're not there in person, you know, with them face to face, covering the team?
3: Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm going to be honest and say, yeah, it has. I mean, you, uh, I was not excited for the playoffs. But, mm. um, I, I thought, I, first of all, I never thought the league was going to be able to pull it off. And man, was I wrong. They <laughs> absolutely nailed it. And I was up in Edmonton for the better part of a month. And, you know, I, I was just so impressed with the way the NHL handled it. I mean, who couldn't be? I mean, I, if they handed out awards for these sort of things, the NHL would win it for sure. So <laughs> um, but I wasn't excited. But I also thought that once, you know, the bullets started flying again and we had hockey again, I did think that people would get right into it. And I remember writing a column on that saying, people don't think they're gonna be interested right now. And I'm not interested right now. It's the middle of summer and who could care less? But I said, once this tournament starts again, there's gonna be a renewed vigor for this. And I found myself getting caught up in it. Now maybe part of it for me was because I was in the building and what, you know you're in a live building, it's great, but it was missing the ambiance, the atmosphere, of, of of you know with the crowds. So yeah, there's no doubt. I think the stories that are being told out of the NHL right now are not as good as they could be if we had access to the players, you know, one on one. If we could sit down and talk to them like human beings, as opposed to this incredible barrier which is Zoom, because guys are not going to be candid, guys are not going to be personable, guys are not going to be funny like they normally would be if they have that in them. and so yeah the journalism suffers the coverage suffers the product suffers but hey everything's suffering right now in the world because of this pandemic so it again we're not immune to it um everything's changed in every business around the world uh and and so yeah but but your question was you know my less interested absolutely right now my interest level in the nhl very very low but i would submit that most fans feel the same way Mm -hmm. again once camp starts once they start playing exhibition games and real games i think it's going to get ramped right up again especially in canada where we live and breathe it and we're going to have the all canadian divisions to be phenomenal
0: i want to pivot and talk a little bit about your career in sports media and to me it's very fascinating just your journey you know before sports that obviously working at the calgary sun newspaper business and then transitioning to tv and a more digital platform and sort of one of the pillars of your career is obviously you've been writing columns and, and you mentioned some of the columns they've been writing at sportsnet.ca obviously call you know column writing and columnists have, have changed over the years just given the platforms in which they are writing but in 2020 eric what do you think goes into writing a successful column
3: oh lord um wish i knew (laughs) no i you know i've been a columnist since i was 23 Mm. uh 24 i guess and you know i'm very lucky to be given that opportunity at a young age and and i know that my career has been shaped largely by my um you know i'm not i have no fear i i I have no problem walking into a dressing room after destroying a player or a team or or a manager or a coach. Um, I don't know how to mince words. Mm. I'm actually trying to learn that as I get older. <laughs> uh, I I I am a black I'm a black and white kind of guy. Like, yeah. it's, you know, I I tell it. I know it's cliche to say I tell it the way it is, but I've never been scared of that. And I know that most people in my profession, uh, you know, are. are have significant trepidation. They're, they're, they're very concerned about what a player will think of them if they write the wrong sentence or the wrong column. Um, you know, again, a lot of people don't have the luxury of writing columns. They, they, they are just beat writers. I don't say just beat writers. They're, they're beat writers, and, and they're not afforded the luxury of really throwing a lot of their opinion in there. And some guys are tremendously relieved uh, about that because then they don't have to stick their neck out and and upset the apple cart every once in a while. I live uh, to tell it the way it is. I don't ever remember writing a column in my life where I wrote something that I didn't believe. Mm -hmm. I think that if you write a column where you're poking the bear, just to poke the bear, you know, to get clicks. Back in the day, we used to say it was to sell newspapers, (laughs) but newspapers don't sell anymore. Now it's all about clickbait. I have never written anything in my life Uh, with an eye on clickbait, you know. I write it because I really believe it. Mm -hmm. Now, Some people can't believe that I believe what I believe. (laughs) But I, you know, I I just, you know, that's that's just the way I've always gone through my career. My mother's a journalist too. Her name is Diane Francis, Mm -hmm. and she's extremely opinionated as well. And so I think I learned it from her. She is not scared to take on anybody or anything in journalism, and I'm certainly the same way. Um, Walking into a dressing room where I know Every guy in that room hates my guts. That's not the case right now, I don't think, with the Calgary Flames, <laughs> although it's always hard to gauge. Um, but I certainly have had many years where the Calgary Flames, you know, for the most part, for the 26 years I've covered the Flames, they have been a junk hockey team. Uh, a, a first-class organization, I'll always say that. But a bad a bad, a bad, bad team for the most part, with some few exceptions. Um, so people say to me sometimes, you know, you're so negative. Why are you so negative? Well, I say, well... 26 years the flames have gotten past the first round twice in two years and since they won the cup in 88 (laughs) uh why should there be sunshine and lollipops and unicorns always surrounding the flames when they're really a brutal organization as a team on the ice again for many many years so i call it the way it is that's the way i've made my career so i guess sorry to go back to your question what what makes a successful calm you know as a columnist, you just got to be true to yourself. If I think something is brutal, if I think something deserves praise, I'm just going to do it. And I'm not going to worry about the repercussions. I guess that's the key. Just write from your heart and uh, and tell it the way you see it. Uh, because if you're writing something that you don't actually believe in, well, then you're a fraud.
0: Yeah, like I, I, I really appreciate that answer for a couple of reasons. I think the whole notion of not writing for clickbait and writing what you believe is so important because I think Unfortunately, now the way you know 21st century journalism is going. Certainly, younger journalists writing for blogs or digital media outlets—it's a great place to get your reps. But unfortunately, sometimes yeah. you you know, given the way you get paid is through traffic, some people may have the tendency to just write that clickbaity you know article or column rather than actually write something that's backed up with facts and and context and experience and i think your point about you know not being afraid of repercussions and especially in a social media age where i'm sure you've experienced this eric where you post a column and flames nation ain't happy right and and they they can write on their twitter commenting you know what you know what, what are you writing about eric what is this why the negativity but i think the point of being a columnist is to spark that debate spark that conversation and if you can't be pointed in your opinions I don't think you can really be a successful columnist. And I think that's true now and probably was true 20, 30 years ago.
3: And, you know, there are columnists that have been great Canadian columnists or American columnists who who rarely stuck their neck out and gave their opinion, but they're just brilliant writers. I mm-hmm. mean, the way they turn a phrase is absolutely just delicious to read. And and I I'm, I don't have that capability. I don't consider myself a an eloquent writer or or orator or or speaker at all you know i i just i am who i am i'm a guy who's got strong opinions and insights that i think i can bring that people don't have now you bring up a great point like people blogging young journalists are trying to make a name for themselves yeah they want clicks that's their whole motivator i'm past that point in my career i'm not looking for clicks i could care you know it's not about that for me i don't need to make a name for myself uh, you know, I'm confidently employed. <laughs> um, and, and I, you know, I don't, it's not about that. What's different is these people can write these blogs and destroy someone, just absolutely eviscerate a player or a general manager or a move or a style of player, whatever it is. And they never have to walk into a dressing room.
1: Yeah. They
3: never have to, none of these people have ever faced these players face to face. And that's symbolic of, you know, what I see on social media now, and I don't pay much attention to it. I'm one of the few people in my business who could care less what people say about me on Twitter and all that. And that's another thing that I, I think has really been key in my career. You know, my friends, uh, my wife, people they're always amazed at how I could water off a duck, duck's back. I can write a column and I'll see on Twitter, I've got 500 comments and I, I'll know that I've touched a nerve. And I just assume that they're just destroying me because over the years, you, you you see them every once in a while, like people just get. I mean, some of it's actionable, really. I mean, I you know, there's I've had death threats, I've had it all, mm-hmm. and I, I could care less. I, my thought is, I've given you my opinion, you can go ahead and give me your opinion. I don't really care what your opinion is. Um, I've given you mine, you've given me yours. We're even, I never engage with anyone on Twitter, uh, because like I said, I've given you my opinion, you've given me yours, done. I'm not going to get into an argument with you. <laughs> um, the other thing is all these keyboard warriors who light me up or light up anybody like spec or anybody, you know, just like they never have to go into a dressing room and look at a player in the eye. And I bet they wouldn't write the same things that they write about them. If they had to face them face to face, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. I have never in my career, this will shock some people, especially people who don't like me. I have never had someone come up to me in my entire life. And Calgary is a very smaller community. You know, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: I get recognized most places that i go i've never had someone come up to me and say something negative mm. in my career and i'm not lying about that i don't i don't wear it as a badge of honor but if you go online you would assume that i'm the most hated man in calgary because of the keyboard warriors who, who you know with fake names they'll come and light you up i'm just saying they've never had the guts to say that to me in front of my face so young journalists go ahead and fill your boots and rip players and con- concepts but when you have to face these people face to face I have a feeling you'll be writing something a little bit different. So be leery of that, young mm-hmm. journalists. You can go ahead right now and make a name for yourself by being polarizing, but that's probably going to have to change if you get a, a mainstream media job. And and I have to – the other thing now is when I left the newspapers after 24 years to go to Sportsnet, I knew that I was giving – I was a, the last guy in this city who had an unfettered, unfettered ability to give his opinion. Nobody could ever come down on me for my opinion. I couldn't get into trouble as long as it wasn't actionable legally. Now I work for Sportsnet, which is a partner of the National Hockey League and the Calgary Flames. I have to watch it a little more. Mm. But at the end of the day, as long as I'm fair, I can be critical as, as I want, but I've got to be fair, and that's the most important thing. And I've always tried to be fair, but I've really got to be careful of it now.
0: Speaking of uh, locker rooms, do you have any memorable moments where you've been chewed out by a player or coach in your uh, in your years in the business?
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah, and you know what? I always appreciate it, and I always tell them that. If a guy rips into me, I would so much rather a guy rip into me, get it off his chest. I remember Doug Clutie did this early in my career. He was mad about something I wrote. And he just you know, he started screaming at me when I was in the locker room. And I you know what, Doug, I really appreciate it. I'm glad that I know where I stand. What I hate is when an athlete or a general manager or anybody that I have to deal with regularly decides to hold a grudge. And you're not really sure why. Because if they get it off their chest, and they don't have to yell, I mean, I would suggest it's not as effective to yell. (laughs) Just pull me aside and say, hey, man, what you wrote was was ridiculous or unfair or uh, I'm really pissed off, whatever. And I always thanked him. I say, hey, because now we can move forward or not. Maybe mm-hmm. we don't move forward. Maybe we never talk again. But uh, I remember Doug Flutie telling me, I'm never going to talk to you again. And then there was a scrum like the very next day and I was at the very front of it. And he's talking and he looks at me and he stops like as if he's going to stop talking to the whole crowd. And he looks at me and he kind of smiles and winks. And, you know, he got it off his chest and we move forward. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh I I remember Bob Hartley just reamed me out. I'm gonna tell you it was gonna be it was almost half an hour in his office. Wow. And it was over one sentence I wrote. And he threatened to sue me and he was gonna, you know, all this stuff. And honestly, he treated me like I was in grade five, just yelling at me like a like a teacher or you know, or a (laughs) principal. It was I mean, it was ridiculous. It was a horrible thing for a human to do. But I let him I let him do it. I let him get it off his chest. At the end of the day, he finished yelling at one point. I said, huh. I'm sorry you feel that way. I'm not going to apologize for what I wrote because yeah. I don't think I did anything wrong, but I'm sorry you feel that way. And I'm wondering if you think we can move forward. And he didn't think we could, but again, a week later, because I listened to him and because we had it out and I told him, you know, also my points on the whole thing, I think he respected me more and we got along better than ever. So those conversations, when someone rips into you can often be some of the best things that ever happened to a relationship.
0: You mentioned how you obviously worked in the newspaper for, you know, almost, you know, you know, over 20 years with the Calgary Sun and then transitioning over to Sportsnet where, you know, you're now on TV, you're doing, you know, writing on digital platforms. You mentioned earlier maybe some of the difficulties of that transition now. You, you may not go as hard just because of the relationship between Sportsnet and the NHL. Were there other elements, Eric, of that transition from the newspaper to Sportsnet that were challenging? How were you able to overcome those challenges?
3: Yeah, I, you know, because I'd done so much TV before. I mean, I got to, that would be the challenge for probably some people, going from pure columnist to, I guess, multimedia guy. But you know, I I hosted a morning show here for 13 years in Calgary. It wasn't even sports. It was just a fun show on Jack FM. Um, you know, I did Hockey Night in Canada, the hot stove, for two years. Um, you know, and I've done so much TV over the years. And I, so that wasn't – the transition to different medium was not a hard one. Um, if anything, uh, you know, it, more, it better suited my style because I, I think I can do all three a little bit. Um, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, as they say. <laughs> uh, I, I – um, in terms of leaving a newspaper, you know, it, it was – it was time i mean it sounds me to say it and it, you know newspapers are dead and mm-hmm. they're not coming back and they've been dead for a while and it was just time to get out before the this, this, this ship completely sank um so it was a no-brainer for me and to be on a team that's partnering with the nhl for i think still six more years um is is the is you know just i'm not going to say the safest god none of us are safe in our <laughs> in our profession anymore but uh it sure just seems like the right place to be right now. And I, I love I love working on Sportsnet for sure.
0: Obviously, look, I mean, we, we, we just touched on it, how the industry is, has changed so much. I mean, newspapers aren't what they once were and, and opportunities are, are very scarce now. What would be a piece of advice you'd give to a young journalists right now trying to, to break into this industry? And, you know, I mean, we've touched on it a bit just in terms of, you know, what it goes to being a successful columnist. But I guess you have to have a lot more skills now compared to when you got into the industry 20, 30 years ago.
3: Yeah, back then you were either a writer or a radio guy or a TV guy. And uh, now you you do a little bit of all three, but your stock is bolstered by the ability to do all three. And I went to Carleton University, took the journalism school there, And I focus largely, I mean, they make you do all three, but it's not like Ryerson or some of these other schools where you really focus. Um, They kind of give you a taste of all of them and then you kind of pursue which one you like most. I always liked writing. Um, I personally think writing is the hardest thing to do of the three. It's the one I think I do the best of the three, but Mm. I I think it's the hardest. I know outlets are having a harder time finding writers as opposed to people who can speak in front of a camera or behind a microphone, but my, my advice... You know what, honest to God, I'm so impressed with chatting with you and and looking at some of your previous interviews. You're a real go-getter. My advice is to do exactly what you're doing. You've got to start your own platform and really build that brand. And and it's not about clicks so much. I mean, although you're always hoping to get clicks because, you know, as a young journalist, you want more and more people to see what you're doing. Um, But, uh, you know, get out there. Uh, press the flesh with people you know i I got a job while i was going to university as a coffee boy (laughs) and a copy runner at the ottawa sun um and i knew that just got me in the door i was making of course minimum wage while i was going to university It was a phenomenal job because i was in the newsroom and i was seeing things happening i was meeting journalists and i always was always reminding them that i am a writer i write for the school newspaper and i'd love to write for you one day and you just kind of slowly work your way up the ladder and now there are no copy runner jobs there's no co- or coffee or boy jobs no copy runners heck there are no newspapers basically i mean it, it, you can't get into mainstream media uh media um without basically having uh, a portfolio like yours and and, and just showing you use the term earlier reps you got to get the reps and whether you're doing it for six people or maybe it's just your mom and dad who are watching or <laughs> listening or you're doing it eventually Actually, if you're doing a good job and as you get better with the reps, then you're going to have more and more eyeballs, more and more clicks, and uh, and it can lead to maybe mainstream media. But I don't even know if you have to go through mainstream media anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some great podcasts out there where people never, ever go through mainstream media uh, to be employed. Um, and you can make a living, I think. So my advice, do keep doing what, what guys like you are doing. And, uh, you know, the art of communication is one that can serve you well. I go and speak to journalism schools, and I – Part of me thinks it's criminal that there still are journalism schools because there are no jobs mm-hmm. for people to, to you know, take afterwards. But I'm passionate about that world of journalism. I'm passionate about the importance of it. I think it's sad that the world where we're living in a world where journalism is dying, and then you get people like Trump in office, and <laughs> we're not going there. But the point is, you know, you need people to keep people accountable, and. Um, but because there are very few jobs in journalism, I always tell people, if you're in this journalism class right now, and you're hoping to get a job like me, where you travel around the NHL, covering NHL games and going to the Olympics and covering British Opens. And stuff, when I retire or when I get fired, um, they're not going to replace me. Yeah. Uh, you know, These jobs are not out there anymore. Um, but the art of communication endures. And I think if you just look at the number of texts you get from friends, it's amazing how many people couldn't spell a full sentence. Um but if you can articulate your thoughts, you can work in the PR world. That's a growing world right now uh, because organizations don't get media coverage. They need to put out their own message. So I think that journalism schools are not a waste of time as long as you're learning the craft of communication.
0: Last question for you, Eric. And I know this is a Battle of Alberta-themed podcast with your colleague Mark Spector coming on. What, what would you say is your favorite memory of uh, the Battle of Alberta, Oilers, Flames, uh in your career covering those two teams
3: wow oh man um I, you know maybe it's just because it's so fresh and new but you know the moment that matthew kachuk decided that he was going to drop the gloves with zach cassian this year mm. you know after all these allegations of turtling and such um and all the hype that went into that rematch after he decided not to punch cassian back Which proved to be the right decision, conclusively, and Mm. um, uh, and I would anyway. I think it was the moment because everyone wanted to know: will he or won't he? Mm. Should he or shouldn't he? And and uh, he had decided. He told me after he decided long, like right after. Yeah, I'll fight the guy, no problem. Uh, um, I know that the team didn't want him to fight. Flames didn't want him to fight, um, and they talked to him about it, Uh, but. They also know that Matthew Kachuk's going to do whatever Matthew Kachuk wants to do, as long as it's still good for the good of the team. And it really was good for the team when he fought that day. The team got a real boost from it. Fans went nuts. And I just remember watching off the face of watching his hands, and I saw that moment that we've all seen where they shed the gloves halfway and they're basically just holding on to the end of the gloves. When he did that and started backing up and saying to Kachuk, let's go, That moment, and when the you know, it took a couple seconds for the crowd to realize what I just seen, Mm. and then all of a sudden they were dropping the gloves and going at it. And like, I'm a huge fan of fighting, I'm glad that it's getting more and more out of the game, don't get me wrong. But when they do (laughs) happen, they mean even more now. Maybe that's my favorite moment of the Battle of Alberta. I mean, there have been a lot of them, don't get me wrong, but you, you know, you put me on the spot. I'm gonna say that one right there because that little exchange in those two games between him and Cassian single handedly renewed the greatest battle in hockey Mm. which is the battle of alberta and it had been dormant for 20 years and with one simple pair of games it's back baby and uh, it may not live up to the hype this year i think it will but when you've got goalies fighting for the first time in the battle's history you know you've touched a nerve and you know you've done something right it was pretty awesome
0: eric francis is a senior columnist and hockey analyst for sportsnet covering the calgary flames Eric, thanks so much for the time today. A wonderful conversation, and thanks again for joining me on the We Sports Chronicles podcast.
3: Hey, good luck with it. Thank you so much. I'd love to chat with you anytime, and uh, but most importantly, good luck with Speck. He's not really good with the English, okay, uh, or articulating his thoughts, uh, but he tries his hardest, and that's that's all you can ask for a guy from Edmonton.